This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. The great architect Frank Lloyd Wright said, The longer I live, the more beautiful life becomes. If you foolishly ignore beauty, you'll soon find yourself without it. Your life will be impoverished. But if you invest in beauty, it will remain with you all the days of your life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. We're always glad to hear from you. Email us at vanleerideas at gmail.com. We're pleased to welcome Adina Hoffman to the show today to talk about her recent book, Till We Have Built Jerusalem, Architects of a New City. Adina Hoffman is an award-winning author whose wide-ranging work includes writing film criticism for the Jerusalem Post and essays that appeared in the Times Literary Supplement, The Nation, and the Boston Globe, among other publications. Hoffman's books include Sacred Trash, The Lost and Found World of the Cairo Geniza, which she wrote together with her husband, Peter Cole, and her newest book, a biography entitled Ben Hecht, Fighting Words, Moving Pictures. Adina Hoffman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Renee. It's great to be here. Adina, your your work is so varied and interesting. What was there a person or a book or an experience that was particularly influential in your intellectual development? Oh wow! Oh, <laughs> not one book. Um, that would be an awfully that would be some book. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean there are all kinds of books um, of all different sorts, and I mean I guess part of what you could say about my work is that it's. I mean I've. I've ranged across um, subject matter, but at some level, I've been trying to work out some sort of way of writing about all of these different things um, that has to do with um, what I've called an, an essay that I wrote once, Imagining the Real, which is to say that I'm really interested in um, reality as such, um, you know, but I also think that the imagination has a huge role to play in the way that um, that one writes about it. And I don't mean imagination in terms of making things up. And I think one book, I mean, again, there are many books, but one book that had a really major effect on me as a young writer um, was James Agee's Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, um, which um, is not much in fashion these days, but it's a remarkable account um, by a remarkable writer of his reckoning with um, these impoverished sharecroppers um, in the American South in the 1930s. And it's, it's a, it famously, it had a whole sort of agonized um, birth. It started out as a newspaper, as a magazine article, and it quickly morphed into Agee's kind of reckoning with the cosmos. And I don't think that I write the way James Agee does. Um, I mean, he's an amazing writer. He's, you know, slightly... Um, he tends toward a sort of overwriting, which I hope I don't indulge in. Um, but I think I learned from him. No, you don't. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I think I learned from him something about how it might be possible to bring a kind of literary sensibility to bear on the very real stuff of life and of often difficult aspects of life. I mean, his his subjects in that book were these really poor, devastatingly poor people. And, um, you know, my subject has not been that per se, but, you know, I started out as a fiction writer and I think I still have a lot of fiction in me in terms of the, the, the textures of fiction. Um, but I'm really drawn toward the world as it is. Um, so at some level, all my books have been an attempt to reckon with that. So we can give AG some credit. There are lots of other writers I could name, but we'll start with that. Yeah. Well, Jerusalem is a perfect topic for the combination of reality and other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, in the in the 2000 years between the time Jews were uh, exiled and lost sovereignty of Israel in the year 70 until they regained it in 1948, the city was dominated by a succession of cultures. Each one left its mark. Why did you decide to focus on the modern era and on these three architects? Well, you know, I've spent most of my adult life in Jerusalem, 
And um, as I have, I've spent a lot of time walking around the city and and I'm often struck by the fact that the Jerusalem that so many people think of um, around the world, um, you know, not just now, but historically, um, when they think about Jerusalem is, you know, very much a Jerusalem of a certain set of of religious um, structures, um, whether they're standing or no longer standing, um, pretty much, you know, certain structures that exist in what we now think of as the old city, you know, whether it's the various, the several destroyed temples or the Dome of the Rock or the Al-Aqsa Mosque or the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or the walls of the city, the old city itself. And those are obviously all very important buildings. But as someone who actually lives in Jerusalem and walks around Jerusalem and has to go to the post office and the bank and um, do her grocery shopping, those are not actually the buildings that figure in my daily life. I mean, they're there. We actually live very close to the old city. And so I'm very conscious of the presence of those buildings. But that's not my Jerusalem in that more daily way. And I mean, I should also say that one of the things that has interested me as a writer, not just in this book, but has been a kind of attempt to reckon with with the with day, daily life in not just a, in a banal way, but sort of what's marvelous and complicated and fascinating about a more ordinary sort of register of existence. And so um, again, that so that that city, that the modern city is is the one that is the city that I know best and am most sort of intimate with. It's also really something that hasn't been written about that much, certainly not in English. I mean, there are Israeli architectural historians um, who've written about the modern city of Jerusalem. But if you go looking for a book um, about the modern city, you'll have a much harder time. So um, in a sense, it was my my curiosity, first of all, just to want to know more about these buildings um, that I spend so much time looking at, um, but also an awareness that this wasn't something that had been written about um, much before and that, that I think is fascinating and I hoped would also interest others. Um, it was certainly all new to me. <laughs> yeah. uh, how did uh, the first architect you uh, introduced, Eric Mendelssohn, yeah the young German-Jewish refugee, how did he come to be chosen to design the flagship Hebrew University Hadassah Hospital on Mount Scopus? Yeah. Tell, tell us that well, story. Well, oh, Mendelssohn, he's such a, he's a wonderful character. And because again, he's sort of a character. I, if I were, if this were a novel, I could not have made Eric Mendelssohn up. He, you know, he was, a, he was a man who had a thriving practice in Germany um, in the 20s, um, in the in the late teens, in the twenties, um, just, he built all kinds of amazing things in Germany. Um, and among his patrons there, um, and he tended to build for Jews in Germany, not only, um, but one of the men who hired him there to do some remarkable work is, um, someone whose name may be familiar to some of your listeners, um, Zalman Schocken, who, um, it was a great, um, I mean, he was a businessman. He was a department store owner in Germany. And those are the buildings that Mendelssohn built for him there were these incredible department stores. But he was also a major cultural figure. He was a, a patron of um, various writers and scholars. Um, he was an amazing bibliophile, bibliomaniac. He had an incredible collection of manuscripts and books of his own. And he was, of course, also a publisher um, and shock and books, um, both in Tel Aviv and New York is now not a part of the family, although in, in, in Tel Aviv, his granddaughter still runs the press. And eventually he would um, become the owner of Haaretz, the newspaper, which the family also still runs. Um, it's very much a family affair. Um, and so Shakin was also involved in the administration of um, the fledgling Hebrew University. And so among other things, when he, um, Shakin was also in, in Germany, but but sort of flirting with Palestine. And he hired Mendelssohn to build him both a library and a house of kind of villa right opposite the library in, in Rehavia. Um, but he also um, sort of suggested that Mendelssohn be the one to be brought on to help construct the, the campus of, of the university. I mean, there were the, the university already existed, of course. There were a few older buildings that were there, but this was a sort of, this was a much grander project, the idea of building a whole campus. And not just the campus of the Hebrew University, but also um, the hospital, the Hadassah Hospital at Hart Sophim at Mount Scopus, which is right next to um, the university campus. That was actually a major part of this. It wasn't one commission, it was a set of commissions, but these were all things, and maybe it's actually important to back up and say that 
Mendelssohn was very much a German architect and he wanted to be a German architect. I mean, he was proud of his Jewishness and he had toyed with coming to Palestine in the early 20s, but he didn't at that point. He sort of, he was drawn to it. I think he was a little bit frightened by, um, you know, he was, he was a cosmopolitan. He and his wife, Louisa, who's also a remarkable figure, lived a very um, sort of um, cosmopolitan life in Berlin. They had all kinds of friends of all different backgrounds and, um, and that was their world. And I think the idea of the sort of tribalism that he recognized already, even in 1923, as being uh, part of what Palestine represented for Jews, I think it it unnerved him. So he didn't come then. And he had all, he had all this great work in Germany. There was no need for him to come. He was also a total egomaniac, which is of course not an unfamiliar uh, mode for (laughs) um, architects of a certain sort. Um, And he was waiting to get a sort of invitation. He was said he wanted to be called to be like the architect of the state in the making. But that didn't happen because, in fact, there were plenty of other architects who were willing to come on their own without these um, lofty um, invitations. So he waited and then he waited and he waited. And of course, at a certain point, things began to change in Germany. And by 1933, the writing was very much on the wall. And he and Louisa basically had to flee in the night, you know, with a uh, you know, a stamp collection and a suitcase. Um, but they didn't come to Palestine. They actually went first to Holland and eventually to London. And so by the time Mendelssohn was being offered these possible um, jobs in Palestine, it was already December of 1934. Um, and he was still on the fence. Like he wasn't sure that this was the place um, where he should be, but he was really drawn to it. I mean, he, he kind of fell in love with it at a certain stage. Um, and that's when he eventually came. And it was with the prospect of the university and the hospital and Schocken's library and house. And I should also say Chaim Weizmann, who at that point was sort of the almost de facto secular leader of world Jewry, um, had also, who was also interested in having Mendelssohn build him a villa in Rehovot. So there were all these things that now made it much more appealing for him to come. Um, and so he came. <laughs> and when you mentioned Schocken, uh, uh, Mendelssohn, as maybe you, one has to have in order to build buildings, mm-hmm. uh, had quite an ego. Yeah. And and Schocken was not a fading flower either. No. Um, <laughs> tell us about their relationship, because I, I think uh, that perhaps architects, maybe even more than other kinds of artists, they really need their clients or patrons. They can't possibly do without them. So yeah, how how did that work out? It's, those it's, two? it's a great question because yeah, absolutely, they they needed each other at some desperate level. I mean, they really needed each other for shock and you know, in all senses, he was a man of he he need you know he had these kind of cultural visions, but he needed someone to carry them out in material form. And obviously, Mendelssohn needed these commissions, and they were also very grand commissions. I mean, both in Germany and then in Jerusalem, these were kind of plum jobs. But they were both, as you say, neither a shrinking flower. And they were both very, you know, I don't mean to uh, um, sort of uh, (laughs) generalize, but they were very German uh, Jewish in a certain way. Um, They were sort of almost the epitome of what is known as a yekka, um, each of them in a slightly different way. I mean, they were, Mendelssohn was a complete perfectionist. Um, And in some ways that were just ridiculous and annoying, but in some ways that were also um, absolutely admirable and part and parcel of his art. And Mendelssohn was an artist. And so he needed everything to be just so. But of course, Schocken was a kind of um, autocrat of sorts, and he needed to be in complete control all the time as well. So there was a constant struggle between them. There was also a kind of um, affection, albeit an affection that was sort of worked out in these very proper terms. And um, there are all kinds of stories about, you know, the building of the of the library and the house. I had some wonderful experiences sitting in the shock and library and reading through some of these exchanges and um and I mean, you know, everything, you know, at a certain point, you know, Mendelssohn didn't need to just build the buildings. He also needed to plan the gardens. And and there are arguments about, you know, the trees need to tilt in this direction. And no, they need to tilt in this direction. And um, but there is a way and I think it's important to say that part of what I was trying to write about in this book is, you know, obviously the physical building of a city. What does it mean to have a physical space that's been built of 
stones and mortar, um, but it's also about what it means to build a city in a more social sense or human sense. And Shachan is someone who was very invested. I mean, not just in Jerusalem, it was really in in the prospect of, of Israel, but, but he was, he lived in Jerusalem and that was his city. And he had a vision of a sort of a city in which scholars and writers um, would um, have a major place. And that something like this library that he had commissioned Mendelssohn to build would be a kind of hub of this kind of cultural activity. Um, you know, Schacken also was a, um, a patron to Agnon, the great Nobel Prize winning novelist, and to Gershom Scholem, the scholar of Jewish mysticism. These were people who all relied on Schacken. Um, you know, Scholem had Schacken um, sending him sausages and marzipan from Germany. This was part of the arrangement. Um, um, <laughs> yeah. And so, and with Mendelssohn, it was similar. Um, I think there was maybe more conflict between the two of them because it was such a, you know, an intimate thing. He's Mendelssohn was building a house in which Schacken and his family would live. This was not a kind of something outside of the walls of the family home. And it was, um, so there was a lot of, of um, as I say, tension, but it was a complicated tension. It was almost like a um, constructive tension that, that gave rise to these amazing buildings and cultural projects. Um, you know, obviously, neither of them, I mean, I'm jumping ahead, neither of them stayed. They, they both left at a certain point for the United States, in fact. Um, but the things that they built um, to a greater or lesser degree have remained. I mean, obviously, the, the, the city that Zaman Shakin wanted to build is not the Jerusalem of today, but Mendelssohn's buildings are still there and you can still go visit the Jacques library um, and, and Mount Scopus, even though it's very much changed um, from, you know, the, the, the building at the hospital has been added to, and it's a little harder to imagine exactly what Mendelssohn was building, but it's still there. Um, yeah. You, you mentioned that the, uh, the building Mendelssohn fell in love with uh, when he came and stayed uh, was the a windmill in yeah. the Rahavia neighborhood yeah. uh, that that expressed to him the east-west fusion that that was appealing to him, but also perhaps that was part of the idea of what the city they were building would be like. Yeah. Um, what what did strike him about that building? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right to land on this east-west fusion, which was very central to Mendelssohn's, you know, slightly romanticized, we have to say, and even vaguely orientalist, but still very um, um, real and, and important, his vision of what the city could be, this place where east and west met. And so that windmill, which is still standing, um, I think it now holds a kosher Chinese restaurant and some clothing stores, if I'm not mistaken, if it hasn't changed hands since. Um, I, I, I think the restaurant's gone. It might be gone. I'm uh, not this in has been a, right now. This has been a tough season for restaurants. Uh, yeah, exactly. uh, but yeah, but it's still there. Uh, but, but the building is still there. It's yeah. still there, and you can see. And this is a building. So he came, as I said, in December of 1934, and he needed a place to work and to live, and his wife hadn't come yet, and so. Um, he had to go scout the place out, and he he found the windmill, and it's a windmill that was built in the 19th century by um, the Greek Orthodox Church, um, and and he would rent it eventually, um, and not only would they live there, but it would become his office. It was where he had his practice in Jerusalem. And one of the amazing things, his wife, Louisa, has an amazing um, unpublished memoir that I, I relied on heavily for a lot of information about their time in the city. And, and she says that the first time she saw it, she got kind of goosebumps because it reminded her immediately of Mendelssohn's first building, um, which is probably his most famous building that he built in 1920 um, in Potsdam in Germany. It says the Einstein Tower, and it's the, the building in which that he, that Albert Einstein, where Albert Einstein was working out his theory of relativity just around the time that he was winning, would win the Nobel Prize. And it's the, the shape of it is very similar. It looks like this kind of um, tower-like building. I mean, obviously the one in Potsdam was not made of the same materials. The, the Jerusalem windmill is made of stone. Um, but he was fascinated by, I think, there's a kind of simplicity to the building. Um, and 
so that and and it's important to say that the buildings that Mendelssohn built in Palestine were different from the buildings that he built in Germany, and that was very important to him to recognize that the context in which he was living and building had changed, and he was very angry at other recent arrivals from um, his part of the world who he felt were simply replicating the buildings that they had been building in Germany and and elsewhere in Europe and that he had been building. He thought that they were sort of stealing from him. But he said, no, we're here now in this other context and we need to learn to build in a way that is appropriate to this place. And so what does that mean? It's first of all, a question of scale. Obviously the scale is much more modest and humble. Um, It's also a matter of materials. And so obviously, I mean, that windmill is made of stone, but by law, um, by the time Mendelssohn got there, this is a British mandatory law, um, all buildings in Jerusalem must be built of stone. And that's something, I mean, obviously, before the British passed that law, most people were using stone in Jerusalem because it was the material most readily available. But when that became law, it's a kind of fascinating constraint. And on the one hand, you know, this is this modernist architect who was used to building in concrete and steel and glass and travertine. And suddenly, um, He's got to deal with stone. But instead of seeing this as some onerous um, imposition, he saw it as an opportunity to try and fuse um, this East-West notion and also to try to learn from the sort of vernacular building of Palestine, which is to say to learn from the people who'd lived there for many, many years and who knew how to build, um, the Palestinian Arabs, who knew, for instance, how to handle the hot sun and the winds and 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 you know, just to build a a glass structure in Jerusalem would be kind of stupid because it's a very hot place in the summer. And Mendelssohn understood that there were reasons um, that the locals had come to build a certain way and he wanted to learn from it, not to replicate it, not to build fake Palestinian Arab buildings, but to build in a way that somehow took from both of these traditions, um, his own more modern sort of European Western thing. And then what he was finding there. So I think the windmill in a way um, epitomized that um, for him. Yeah. There, there are writers who uh, suggest that architecture, unlike other material arts is generally an art of vision and hope that it's not about what is, but rather about what might be in the future. Yeah. Does, how does that strike you? What do you what do you think about that idea? I think that's absolutely true, and I think that it's also really complicated um, in any context, but really especially complicated in a city like Jerusalem. And so, I mean, all three of the architects I write about in this book, um, I think, were at some basic level, yeah, people who had a kind of forward-looking sense of what the possibilities might be, and. Um, especially for someone like Mendelssohn, who felt himself, um, at least initially, to be part of this project of building something new that would um, new that was connected to something much older, um, it was very much about this kind of aspiration. But of course, as soon as you start to build in a city like Jerusalem that has so many other things on its mind um, besides building, and besides, you know, you started out with that wonderful Frank Lloyd Wright quote, "Beauty." I mean, beauty is. A complicated notion in Jerusalem. I mean, obviously, it is one of the most beautiful cities in the world, but it is also, I would offer, one of the ugliest. Um, and I don't just mean physically ugly. I mean, there's a lot of human ugliness um, that takes place in the streets of Jerusalem. And so all three of these architects, not just them, any architect, I think, building in that context, was having not only to deal, was, was not only able to track in possibility, but also had to deal with a lot of difficulty and a lot of distraction and a lot of, um, I mean, you know, again, just to go on with Mendelssohn, since we've been talking about him, you know, he, not only did he have a, um, a, a visual um, sort of set of aspirations, but he had a social set of aspirations too. I mean, he had a vision, not just of learning from the local architects, Palestinian architects about how to build, but he also had a vision of a kind of, Arab Jewish commonwealth that might come to be a kind of Semitic um, place in which Arabs and Jews would work together. Um, Well, that was pretty quickly, you know, that was 
the hopes for that were being dashed right and left as, you know, there was a lot of political violence that was taking place um, during the time that he was working there. Budgets were being cut because people had other priorities. Organizations like Hadassah were more interested in, you know, buying ambulances than they were in funding his, you know, magnificent structure on Mount Scopus. Um, And so there's a constant um, sort of battle between what, what each of them wished might be, and then what the realities were on the ground. Um, And there's also, I mean, to go back to the beauty ugliness question, I mean, there's a lot of suspicion historically, but to this day of, of beauty. I mean, I, you know, I think one of the things, um, one of the sort of early uh, moments that I think pushed me toward writing this book, I had this encounter uh, at the post office and it's actually the post office is a book is a building that I talk about, at length in the book, because the second architect who I write about, Austin St. Barb Harrison, was its architect. But I basically was standing online for a long time to mail something. This was a while ago, obviously, and it was hot and it was crowded and everybody was irritable. And then when I got to the front of the line, I handed the clerk my package and she grabbed it from me. And I said something in Hebrew about how it's, you know, it's going to the United States. It's a book. And she basically, she probably heard my accent and a certain contempt was probably already present. And she basically smeared stamps like all over the envelope at every angle possible. (laughs) And I just, and I had taken some time to wrap this thing nicely, you know, and I, I said to her, what are you doing? Like, why did you do that? And she looked at me and this is a totally, I'm not making this up. She actually said this to me in Hebrew. She said, we don't have time for aesthetics. I mean, she was obviously wow. place, like <laughs> you foreign lady with your ideas about aesthetics. And it really got to me. I mean, and I kind of turned it over in my head for weeks after walking around the city. And I was thinking, you know, that's really actually a bizarre thing to say in this city because there actually have been a lot of people who had time for aesthetics. I mean, not only aesthetics, but somebody like Eric Mendelssohn had time for aesthetics and not only aesthetics. I mean, what does that mean? Because for him, part of the aesthetics that he was interested in was also this whole notion of context of making sure that you're aware of the social context and the, and the environmental context and the religious context and et cetera, that you're working in. So it's not as though aesthetics can be pried apart from the rest of it, but that's the attitude. And so each of them to come back to your question is a very long answer to your very good question, but the aspiration toward possibly beauty, the idea of building something beautiful is all well and good but then you're faced with all the rest of it. And that makes it a very, very, I think it makes that kind of hope a very difficult thing to hold on to. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's challenging. And I, I don't think it's unique to Jerusalem. It's it just it's more uh, extreme. It's, absolutely. No, it's absolutely, I mean, any, any architect has these stories, no matter where they build. But I do think, you know, also every time you build in Jerusalem, you are, essentially um, having to dig down literally into the ground and then there will be archaeological remains and then we have battles over that and not just whose remains are they but what should happen to those remains and so there, there are extra things that an architect working yes. in Jerusalem has to deal with. <laughs> yeah. right, right. Well let's move on to the next architect yeah. uh, Austin Harrison. Uh, he's a real contrast to uh, Mendelssohn's intensity. Yeah. Uh, it, tell us about him and about the relationship between the two. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right. He's a very, um, he's an amazing contrast. He obviously, as his name makes clear, was um, not Jewish. Um, he was very British. Austin St. Barb Harrison. In fact, the Austin is for an ancient, a distant relative, Jane Austen. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> he was the chief architect of the British mandate from 1922 to 1937. So he was there in an official capacity as a civil servant, um, the, you know, the colonial administration of Palestine, a very, um, I mean, Mendelssohn was refined, but in a different way, Harrison was a very refined, very retiring man, um, a very private person. Um, I mean, for a public servant, he was amazingly private. Um, And he's someone who, I mean, I say he was very British, but he's actually someone who left England as a young man. He actually left to go to college in Canada. Um, 
and then came back briefly to London just for a few years. And he served as a stretcher bearer in the First World War. But after that, he left and he went east. And he spent his entire adult life in the east, in first in Greece, right after the First World War, um, eventually in Palestine, and then later in Cyprus and Egypt. Um, and he was fascinated by the architecture of this part of the world, that part of the world. Um, and he began very early on to sort of school himself in Byzantine architecture and Islamic architecture. Um, and one of the, I mean, there are many remarkable things about Harrison, but one of the things that fascinated me about him and his buildings is how in the context of these were all official commissions. He was being paid to, you know, first to do things like just build police stations and public uh, lavatories and things like that, but then later to build some major structures. You know, the post office is the last structure that he built in Palestine, um, but he also built the high commissioner's house um, and the what is now known as the Rockefeller Museum, which was the Palestine Archaeological Museum, which is one of my absolute favorite buildings in the city. But in each of these contexts, he's building for the king, basically. I mean, for the king's, you know, for, for the mandatory authorities, for the high commissioner. But he's smuggling in all of his knowledge of these Eastern architectures in very subtle ways. I mean, he doesn't necessarily want the um, people um, who are checking up on him from London to even recognize that that's going on. It's not his goal. He's not flaunting it. He's just in love with these structures and he knows that he can also build something. And here he shares something with Mendelssohn, something that belongs in this context, um, that feels an extension of the place itself so that it's not just a foreign imposition um, that's being plopped down from the outside so that for instance, I mean, the Rockefeller, again, it wasn't known as the Rockefeller then, but um, if you look at that building and it's a building that I would urge anyone who lives in or visits Jerusalem to go see very few people do most of the time when I go there, I'm almost alone except for the guard or the, you know, there's some people um, working there, but other than that, it's very empty. And that's in part, you know, that's for contemporary political reasons. It's in East Jerusalem. And so, Many Israelis are sort of afraid to go there because it's sort of deep inside Palestinian East Jerusalem, and most Palestinians don't want to go there because it's got a lot of Israeli flags around and a pretty um, stern security guard who makes you walk through the metal detector when you come in. It's a kind of imposing place. Tourists, I think, just don't know. But what's amazing about, well, there are a lot of amazing things about that building, but Harrison has managed in one place to bring to bear some kind of echoes of, you know, like crusader forts and uh, Byzantine churches and Ottoman mansions and um, even kind of more humble Palestinian houses with like a cube and a dome on the top. The courtyard, the central courtyard of the Rockefeller is basically a very strong echo of the Alhambra, of the court of the Myrtles at the Alhambra. And what's amazing is that he, that sounds like a mess, like he's just throwing in little bits and pieces of everything, but it's an incredibly harmonious space. It brings together all of these things um, uh, with the kind of, and I should also say about Harrison, he was kind of a pacifist. He really was not someone who had taken sides politically in Israel, in Palestine, I guess during his time, it was just Palestine. Um, but he he had friends on all sides, and he was you know he was a, an Englishman, but he wasn't a partisan. And I my sense is that his buildings at their best bring to bear his sense of like what this city could be. Again, back to your question about aspiration, that if somehow people could live together, and also if these forms visually could come together look at what might be. I mean, he also had his hopes pretty strongly dashed and had to flee the city in the dark of night telling no one because he was so horrified and disgusted by the violence that was unfolding. Um, but I do think that that's, I don't know how conscious that was when he was, was working on that building. I'm not sure he had a political program, but that's what I see when I look at the way he brings these things together. Um, and then the third architect, whose name I'm sure I'm going to mangle, Spiro Huris. Yeah, basically, Huri. Spiro Huri. Spiro, which is a Greek name, and then yeah. Huri, which is an Arab name, um, which we can talk about. <laughs> that, that interesting combination. Right. It's, it wasn't. 
it wasn't clear, apparently. It's a little mysterious. Is he ethnically Arab, religiously Greek Orthodox? Right. He lived under the Ottoman rule right. and was a pr- proponent of the concept of greater Syria. Well, that we, don't area. Have, we don't actually know what his political views were. I, I wouldn't actually, oh, um, I, I wouldn't chalk that up to him. I mean, I think... Um, no, I think you're thinking of Sakakini, who's a figure who, there are a lot of people in this book. <laughs> there are many, ah, many characters. Okay. I mean, it's important to say I write about three architects, but in the context of writing about them, I write about a bunch of other people who surrounded them who were either their patrons or their um, friends. Or So Sakakini who's also uh-huh. an interesting figure who, in fact, um, at one point, long before Eric Mendelssohn got there, lived in that um, same windmill. Um, and he comes up in the context of my looking for Spiro Hori. And I guess maybe for people who haven't read the book, it's worth just saying that um, the first two architects, Mendelssohn and Harrison, are people about whom, I mean, Mendelssohn is, is he's not well known, but he's the best known of these architects. So that if you know about architecture, you might know about Eric Mendelssohn. Harrison is a little bit more obscure, but there's a lot of material around in the archives, at least. It hasn't been written in books, but I was able to piece together a fair amount about him. But Spiro Khoury is something else. He's someone who's been almost completely forgotten. Um, he, luckily for us, left his name on the sides of several really amazing buildings so that we know he was there. It says Spiro G. Hori Architect, you know, in French on the side of three mansions. Um, and a few architectural historians have written about him in Hebrew, but he really left very little in the way of information or little has been known about him and people haven't even thought to ask and I was curious, many of the buildings around Jerusalem that have these incredible Armenian tile work, the tiles on the side, are his buildings. Um, I knew that. But I wanted to know who was this person who left these things and who seems to have also been responsible and seems to have been, is an important phrase when it comes to Khoury because so little is clear, but he seems to have been responsible for a lot of the buildings around what is now Zion Square, um, you know, major built. When you think of downtown West Jerusalem, you think of these buildings, whether or not you've ever heard of Spiro Khoury. So I set out looking for him and to figure out who he was and not only who he was, but why his name had disappeared um, and knowledge of him had disappeared. And this was also kind of crazy in the middle of the summer of 2014 as the last Gaza war was happening. And it was a kind of a crazy time to be running around hot, angry Jerusalem looking for his traces. Um, but and they were hard to find. I mean, it really. I was, and I kind of entered the book at this point as a character myself. You know, um, looking for him anywhere I can. You know, going to the Greek Patriarchate in the old city and the ecclesiastical courts and the Greek consulate. And uh, um, I actually found myself in the Central Zionist Archive and the Israel State Archive looking because one of the interesting things about Hori is that. It seems that this actually doesn't seem, we know this, unlike Mendelssohn, who built for Jews and Jews alone, pretty much in Palestine, and Harrison, who built for the English, Corey seems to have, he he built for all kinds of clients um, across these usual ethnic and national uh, borders, so that, you know, his clients included, um, you know, a major Palestinian nationalist figure, um, uh, Nashashibi, whose villa is still standing um, on the way up to Mount Scopus, um, but he also built for an important um, Sephardic Ottoman era judge who came um, from Constantinople um, and whose build, whose house is also still standing behind the central bus station, what is now the central bus station, and he built for Greeks and Catholics, and um, he seems to have had this very um, sort of eclectic. Um, clientele. And he built in different styles. He wasn't like Mendelssohn, who has a very obvious, you you see a Mendelssohn building, you know, it's a Mendelssohn building. Hori would build build according to what his clients wanted. And that was a very wide ranging thing. And so I was fascinated by the fact that such a person could have existed that, and not just that he existed, but that obviously there was a way in which at that time in Jerusalem, there seems to have been some other possible way of being besides, you know, let's face it, if you live in Jerusalem now, even if you don't live in Jerusalem, if you think about Jerusalem now, you tend to think in fairly, like it or not, you know, black and white here or there, us or them terms. I mean, there's, you are either an an Arab or you're a Jew, you're either a 
you're either pro-Israel or you're pro-Palestine. And it was clear to me, I mean, I'm generalizing, obviously there are people who have a more nuanced view you'd like to think, but this is in some sense, and it's also the basically the Western media version of the place is that it's there's this side and there's this side, there are these two sides. But it's clear from thinking about somebody like Hori that it's a lot more complicated and that these identities, both individual identities and that the city's own identity were much more flexible and fluid. And so that a man who had a Greek first name and an Arab last name, and it seems whose primary, his mother tongue seems to have been French, that these were not contradictions. They were, this was what was and what was possible um, then. And it's something that is really in danger now. Um, You know, it still exists to a certain degree in Jerusalem, that kind of um, fluidity, but it's very much not the norm. Um, Well, actually, that reminds me, I was very surprised with the small item you put in, given that your vision and your writing, it was very wide ranging and inclusive. And clearly this idea of bringing disparate kinds of people together is is dear to you. You like it. I was really surprised when you wrote, honestly, that um, you had never been in the home of an ultra-Orthodox Jew, and that when yeah. you knocked on the, the door of who, someone who's basically a neighbor, uh, because you wanted to see that the building, right. you were surprised that she greeted you warmly. Yeah. So no, talk about yeah. that experience and no, it's a the stereotypes we all have. Right? No, no, it's totally, it's a great question. And it's actually, kind of, you know, I guess I myself was surprised at being surprised because I do consider myself a very open person and somebody who knows all different kinds of people, but it really was the first time. And I actually, I now live in a neighborhood which is primarily all, increasingly ultra-Orthodox, and yet I am not really invited into, I mean, everybody tolerates each other more or less, but we're not crossing each other's front doorsteps. Um, in that case, I mean, yeah. And, and this is my own, you know, I, I take the blame. I mean, I was, you know, not as maybe uh, liberal and open as I, you know, the fact that I was surprised that this woman was so warm and welcoming, um, uh, was a surprise to me. I mean, maybe because this is a, I mean, I basically, I spent all morning at, the Central Zionist Archive, and I unearthed this material about this particular house and then found myself, again, in the heat of summer, um, walking, almost like compelled to walk toward this house and knocking on the door. And I wasn't dressed for the occasion. Like, had I known I was going to go knock on the house, the door of an ultra-Orthodox family, I probably would have dressed differently, but I was just there in my short sleeve blouse and my pants. and, And I knocked, and this woman welcomed me in and she was great and she was very um eager to help she had some photographs she she showed me and shared with me and um and it is one of those ironies i mean everyone has their blind spots um you know i totally it, 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 uh, it made me think of my own yeah i, I read it and resonated to yeah. it I mean, I've spent a lot of time in the homes of religious people and uh, many religious friends and all that, but this was a slightly different category. This was a very, this was a very ultra, very ultra orthodox um, setting, but that doesn't change the, the question or or my answer. Um, and so, yeah, and that's part of the fabric of Jerusalem as well. And you know, and I think, um, yeah, I mean, tolerance is tolerance, and if you want to talk about about coexistence, I think that's absolutely got to be a part of the conversation. And it's one of the things, frankly, that sometimes um, aggravates me um, when certain Tel Avivis talk about their tolerance, because there's a great intolerance for um, for religiosity. And, and that's, you know, and I suppose at some level, I mean, I'd like to think I'm more open, but obviously this was demonstrated uh, by my own sort of awareness of how odd it was for me to be in this, in this setting. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, and that is one of the things about Jer- Jerusalem. And, you know, I think to talk about, it's important to, to have all of those registers, um, you know, somehow freely coexisting in the city. Um, I'm not calling for a ban on the religious, God forbid. I mean, you know. No, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> no, it, it just, it, it just, what, what resonated with me in that little paragraph was how often we stay in our own silo and, have our own uh, confirmation bias because we don't reach out to see whether what we think is really true. Sure. So, um, and that's also one of the interesting things about Jerusalem itself is that unlike 
other cities around the world where things are very, you know, you have to really cross town to get to some other thing. I mean, Jerusalem, because it's a small packed city, stuff is actually right next to each other. And I mean, I'm often just flabbergasted when I stop to actually look around me in my own neighborhood and say, like, basically, if I walk, you know, 20 meters in this direction, I'm in an ultra-Orthodox neighborhood, 20 meters in this direction, I'm in Palestinian neighborhood, you know, right here, I'm surrounded by all kinds of things, but it's all very closely, it's all very close. So it's all right there, but there is a kind of psychic thing that has to take place in which you... (laughs) <laughs> move out of yeah. your, your silo, as you say. <laughs> the barrier is uh, invisible, right. but there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, what's your personal favorite among the modern buildings oh, in Jerusalem? I don't know that I can choose because part of what I love about Jerusalem is that these things are all there and that they that they're in a kind of conversation. I mean, I I did mention the Rockefeller, which I think is a stupendous building. So I love that building. But I also, I love some of, I mean, I think Mendelssohn's bank building, it's a more subtle building in a way. It's not as flamboyantly um, amazing, but I love it. It's, It's the building right now. It's not the bank. It's right next to the post office, which is also an amazing building um, on on Jaffa Road. Um, it was built as the Anglo-Palestine Bank in the late 30s by Mendelssohn, and then it was Bank Lumi. Now it's a government agent office. Um, so, you know, I love that. But I also love, I mean, some of these buildings of Khouri's, which are not, I would never say like, this is the greatest building in Jerusalem, but there are some incredible things. You know, there's a villa, a particular villa in Talbia, um, which he built for a kind of Catholic aristocrat and civic leader named Jalat. Um, that's a, a wonderful, weird, strange building, again, with these gorgeous tiles by the Armenian ceramicist David Ohanassian. Um, and these uh, these kind of strange sculptural things on the roof. You know, it's a, it's a funny, quirky, weird building, but but I love that too. And I don't know that you need to be able to choose a favorite. No. Um, and there are other, no. and I also, you know, one of the things in writing a book, you have to pick your spots. And I, I chose to write about Mendelssohn as the sort of Jewish architect of this, this um, triad, but there are some other amazing modernist buildings in Rehavia built by other architects, you know, Richard Kaufman, who was more in some ways, a more um, central Um, figure in terms of the Zionist project. He built a lot of um, major, um, he he built, he planned whole neighborhoods and he built things like um, Nahalal, um, Moshav, and and he built a lot of incredible structures, including uh, now it's a little hard to see it as a beautiful building because it's been so defaced by security stuff. But what is now the prime minister's house on Balfour Street, right opposite the Shawkin Library and right next to what was the Shawkin Villa, which is now just a kind of wreck. Um, that's also was an amazing building. And if you walk around Rehavia, there are all kinds of wonderful buildings by a whole generation of, of builders of that, um, that kind of background. Um, so I wouldn't pick my favorite. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Well, well, finally, before we close, let's move from the Middle East to the West and and take a moment to tell us about your brand new book, Ben Hecht, huh? Fighting Words, Moving Pictures. Who was Ben Hecht? And just tell us oh, a bit about okay. him. Okay, well, how much time do you have? Ben Hecht was an amazing figure. <laughs> no, I mean, he's a total polymath, and it's hard to, to cram it all in. I mean, Ben Hecht is known, if he's known at all. And I should say, when I was writing this book, I would get this really funny look when people would say, what are you writing? And I'd say, I'm writing about Ben Hecht. And it was clear that they didn't want to admit that they weren't sure who I was talking about. But in his day, he was known as... Um, possibly the greatest American screenwriter of the golden age of Hollywood. Um, But he was also um, a newspaper man in Chicago and a playwright and a novelist. And, um, and later um, in life, he sort of discovered his Jewishness. He claims in 1939, he became a very outspoken activist, um, both in terms of wanting to alert the world to what was happening to the Jews of Europe and later as a very outspoken um, propagandist, his own term for the Irgun, for the extreme um, national right-wing national nationalist underground um, in Palestine. Um, and um, Renee, are you still there? 
Yes. Yeah, okay, it just said I lost the connection. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so he was all those things. I mean, I would say that in some sense, Ben Hecht, although his name has basically been forgotten, he pretty much helped to create American popular culture as we know it. I mean, Jean-Luc Godard said at one point that he that Hecht invented, um, uh, is it 80%? 80% of what is used in Hollywood movies today, which might be a slight overstatement, but he's responsible for that. But he also, you know, the the plays that he wrote together with Charles MacArthur, the front page is the most famous of them, which is very much, it's all about the newspaper world of Chicago, which they were both a part of in their youth, um, that that basically helped to create American theater of the of the second half of the 20th century. Tennessee Williams said that they basically took the corsets off the American theater and made it possible for him to write his own plays. Um, his novels, which are not especially good novels, but I think that they also made possible, they kind of cleared the way for people like Bellow and Roth. Um, so he's this amazing figure. And the Jewish part of it was was really central to my own interest in him. I mean, he is someone who, I mean, I had a kind of ongoing argument with him as I was writing the book, because I don't believe that he became a Jew in 1939. I think he was born a Jew. He was born on the Lower East Side, and his first language was Yiddish, and he had a very Jewish sense of humor. <laughs> but he was, he was somehow, his consciousness was raised in a way by the Holocaust. And I was fascinated by his own approach to these great big subjects of, um, you know, and, and Israel, Palestine, um, you know, chief among them, you know, he and I have very different political ideas, but I actually thought it would be fascinating to try to write sympathetically about someone, you know, I have a huge amount of respect and I just take total like delight in much of what he did with his time, but I also totally disagree with him. And I thought it would be a kind of interesting imaginative experience to have to stretch myself to understand a figure you know, who I do have such a strong disagreement with. So it was a sort of a challenge I set for myself. <laughs> um, well, I, I look forward to reading it. I think he's, uh, he was an extraordinary character and extremely under-recognized, yeah. uh, at least currently. Yeah. So, Adina, you've been very generous with your no, time. No, uh, like, thank I want to w- wish you good luck with the new book. Thanks. And continue with this one. Um, thank you very much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's been really good. Um, yeah. And also I want to thank Bela who set this up, um, at the, at Van Leer. She was wonderful too. <laughs> so. Okay. You beat me to it. <laughs> good. She, she is a, a great help. Thank you very much. Yeah. And, uh, take care. You too. Be well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.